Blog Talk Radio. Welcome once again to Madam Perry Salon, the podcast that loves you. The podcast with more celebrities, and that is the truth, more celebrities than the last inauguration. But I don't think it's going to be this more than the next. Well, maybe. Who knows? I've, we've had a lot of fabulous people here, celebrities and not celebrities. Anyway, I am your host, your groove mistress, your spiritual advisor and cruise director, Madam Perry. But you can call me Jen, Jennifer, JP. Perry, I am just happy to be here and happy to that you're listening. And by the way, I want to give a big love and thank you to my friend Juliana Arai. Uh, she's Japanese, but she lives in South America, so she's got all kinds of um, fabulous cultural vibes going on. But she noticed uh, a mistake I had made on the Facebook post for tonight's show and the link, and she contacted me to make sure I got it corrected and got it right. And Juliana, thank you so much because she was saying she loved last night's show with Zigzag Claiborne. Zigzag, what a guy. He writes uh, science fiction and he is just fantastic. His newest book is Afro Puffs are the Antenna of the Universe. And it is a great book. It is, uh, uh, as one reviewer said, no writer has more fun writing. You could tell. Dan Zigzag Claiborne. And anyway, so we had fun with him last night. Get his book. Also, um, B.J. Mendelson, uh, researcher, author, editor, author of the book Social Media's Bullshit. He was on last week. Fun. Um, somebody, oh, I know. Somebody told me that else that heard Arden Marine. And, you know, Arden Marine, comedian, writer, actress. Uh, lately, you would know her from the show Insatiable on Netflix, and I think she was also on Shameless. She's been on her IMDb page is you could wallpaper with it, uh, but I think she started with Mad TV years ago. But anyway, when she was on the show a couple of weeks ago, she said that uh, her book Little Miss Little Compton about growing up in the town Little Compton, Rhode Island, that uh, she had had some bags made, tote bags made. So if you bought her book, uh, you'd get a tote the bag, and it's so cute so um yeah go check out arden marine's little miss little compton it's uh it's a hilarious book of a woman growing up in a strange family and uh, of a loving family though and but just uh, the odd things that happened in little compton rhode island and when you've got a town where there's a crow that's stealing people's mail and finally gets locked up in the count in the uh, town jail You've got an interesting memoir with that alone. Anyway, um, oh, and don't forget, we had saxophonist Dave Koz to get his new CD, A New Day. And he says he wrote it. He's got all his celeb friends playing on it. But he wanted that CD, he wanted that music to be a love song, uh, a, a virtual hug to everybody going through these times. And he still has on his website, if you send him, a picture of you wearing one of the colors, one of the rainbow colors, 
uh, he puts your picture on his website and go do it and check it out, DaveKyles.com. He really honestly does it. Now, a lot of people were very excited about tonight's guest. They've been telling me, and I said, yeah, so am I. Uh, tonight's guest is a linguist, educator, poet, uh, and she's done a lot of research on this book she's written and a project she's created. She's um, She was talking about how a person's last words take on a very eerie significance, giving tantalizing clues about the ultimate fate of the human soul. And until recently... Actually, nobody had systematically studied end-of-life communication by using examples from ordinary people. That's exactly what she did. She's the founder of the Final Words Project, and I am so thrilled to have her here in Madame Perry's salon. So please, let me get her mic warmed up here in the Genie Bottle. So please welcome Lisa Smart. Lisa, welcome. Thank you for the warm welcome. Good evening. Good evening to you. And, uh, you know, we were just talking about how, um, before the show, you know, so many of us are are going through uh, sometimes the same things right now. Even though we're apart, it's not like we talk about them at the office. You know, used to, you maybe would go to work, go to school, and you'd have chat before class or before on break about what's going on. And we don't. We have social media where we can share, but sometimes it's... uh, Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not quite enough, but there's a lot of things we're going through. <laughs> Wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. oh, these are hard times. They're challenging times. And then, you know, winter is coming and the days have gotten darker and shorter. And, you know, um, but just in the last few days, uh, this is the first time in my life that I've lived alone. You know, I was a mother. I was married twice. Um and then I, I think this is the first time since I was 23 that I've lived alone. And so I am really alone right now. You know, I'm going through the pandemic on my own. Oh, and, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I'm just, you know, I think I mentioned to you when we uh, talked before um, in the past that, you know, I, I went through a divorce this year. My husband walked out on me. By, I did not expect it. Um, and, but, you know, there's a real blessing in it. I'm beginning for the first time to really appreciate the potential and what's possible, you know, when when we really go deep inside, you know, and my connection to spirit has really strengthened in the last week. And because, um, you know, the choice is either I, I deepen my connection or I am, you know, anxious or scared or unhappy. And and the other thing that's happening is I'm taking I'm taking music lessons through Zoom, oh. and it's something I you know the blessing of of my unexpected uh, divorce is that I'm decided to do everything I've always wanted to do, and uh, you know I love singing, but my ex husband used to tease me about it, so those days are gone, oh. and. Uh, you know, it's like if when, when, you know, make lemons out of lemonade when you can. I mean, of course, there's some circumstances uh, you can't do that. I mean, some circumstances are, are really tough. But something like my situation, it's just a few lemons. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm taking voice lessons. I'm reading a lot. You know, I've, I, because I spend a lot of time during the day with clients online, um, at the end of my work day, I really don't want to be on the computer much. So, 
and I'm reading again. I'm picking up my instruments. I'm learning how to how to make music, and um, I'm having a blast. And um, and you know, I'm a language person, and uh, I'm I'm writing a musical about my marriage and my divorce as a way to sort of work with healing some of the pain because art is a great way to heal, you know, heal a lot of our suffering. So um, I don't know. I if you talked to me a week ago, it may have been a different story, but Tonight I'm in a state of incredible gratitude for, you know, I'm one of the lucky people. I've got some money in the bank, not a lot, but I've got money in the bank. I've got a nice home. Um, so, you know, I know I'm blessed and I'm really appreciating right now uh, what I have. Mm-hmm. That, that is good. I am so thrilled to know that, that you are studying voice and studying uh, music. I think that's uh, <laughs> You know, I've always thought, I used to have, I played for years, I had a jazz band, and we, um, I always think, you know, the worst day I ever had at work, when I got to the gig, something something happened and transformed, and I thought something about, too, about live music, maybe I just, I haven't, I'm no scientist like you, I haven't researched it, but I always felt that it had to have something to do with the vibration, say something as percussive as the stand-up bass, yes. or just the, the music from... Yeah, from from my keyboard player or everybody else, yeah, it you just couldn't help but feel better. Well, you know, since we're talking about last words, I believe it was Box. Um, final words were, "Don't cry for me. I'm going where the music is made." And you know, this whole isn't that beautiful. I just love those words. I'm pretty sure it was Bach and not Beethoven um, who said that. And you know. Music, we talk about the idea of the muse, right? And one of the things we see with people's final words is that those the words become much more poetic often as people are dying. And it's as if they're connected to, you know, music is its own kind of language. And, um, and for me, I have found in these days that are, you know, pretty dark and a lot of stuff is happening that the more I can connect to music and that the the frequencies and I do believe there's um you know a connection to the divine through frequency and through music. And a lot of people have near death experiences as as you may know, I work very closely with Dr. Moody who coined the term near death experience. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we know about people who have near death experiences, they they many of them come back with musical gifts they didn't have before they died and they, they go to the other side and they hear music and they connect with that part of their souls or themselves um, and bring it back. Um, and there's some really, uh, David Ditchfield, Tony Sicoria, they're, um, they're these folks who have had near-death experiences. And Tony, for example, was a doctor. He was a surgeon. He had a near-death experience when he was hit by lightning. And... Um, you know, he died, had the experience of going to the other world, and when he came back, he just had this passion and desire to make music, and he's become a classical pianist. Um, so I think the incredible solace and connection to to source um, in music, and so that's one of the ways I'm trying to lighten up these dark days as, um, you know, I'm pretty much staying kind of sheltering at home myself just lately. Um, yeah, yeah. As, as you mentioned, you work with Dr. Raymond Moody, and 
um, so many people know of his work, and I've read, I've been reading his books for I don't know how many year, decades, but uh, yeah, he's the one. He did first coin the term uh, near death experience, and I think his first book on that was Life After Life, and you worked with him um, very closely. So I know he's given, I, I think he gave a foreword on this book, and he's he really has been supportive of your work and very proud of it. I can tell. Um, so would you tell us, uh, first of all, would you define for the audience, what is the Final Words Project? The Final Words Project, I founded it in uh, really officially 2014 is when I built the website and you know, everything really came together. Um, but I uh, established it because in the end of 2012, my father um, died rather suddenly over a three-week period. And I noticed, I was trained in linguistics, as you mentioned in my introduction, and, um, and I noticed as he was dying that there were things going on in his language that I couldn't believe, actually. They stunned me and made me curious. And so when he passed on, I went to go do research at UC Berkeley because I was in Berkeley where my father was living and where I went to school. And I looked in the library there to find out information about people's final words, you know, in the linguistics department, thinking that there must be as much research about people's final words as there are about children. You know, we, we know a lot about children and the acquisition of language. And I was stunned to find that there was no real scientific or linguistic research into what happens as people die and what they say. And um, so... Because of the kinds of things, you know, my father talked about angels. He started talking in metaphors. His language became poetic, sometimes nonsensical. I was really curious about the language I heard from him. So I thought, oh, my gosh, no one's doing this research. I, I just felt completely um, driven, for lack of a better word, just completely passionate about finding out more about the mystery of words at the threshold. And so I um, started collecting people's final words, but you know, I didn't do it with like a tape recorder. You know, did, you know, usually as a linguist, you collect language with digital recorders or tape recorders. But because of the ethical considerations with this work, mm-hmm. um, I opted instead to invite families to have a journal near the bed of their loved one. And when people oh. come bedside, Yes, people would take turns in the family. And it was, it actually, you know, someone told me when I was considering doing this research, um, you know, that I didn't want to do research that would be harmful. You know, I didn't want to go into a tape recorder where I wouldn't be able to ethically anyway. But, you know, I didn't want to do anything because it was such a delicate time of life. Um, I wanted to do something healing. And so I realized that, you know, having a journal bedside and people can write down what they wanted. you know, gave gave families an opportunity to track the language and for me to get samples in a way that was very respective, um, you know, very respectful, excuse me, of, of the person who was dying. You know, I tell a story often about my grandmother when she was dying and um, she, I came into the room and she and I were always close and she said, Lisa, um, don't tell anyone, but you were, you were my favorite. You were my favorite. You know, oh. we had this really intimate moment. You know, she said, you know, you're a little chubby like me. You love chocolate. You know, anyway, we're 
you know, you've studied language and we both, you know, I held her hand and I felt really honored that she said that. And, you know, obviously, and then uh, six months later, I was walking uh, with two of my cousins who were hiking and uh, one of them said, I'm really embarrassed to say this, but grandma told me I was her favorite. And then the other cousin, of course, said, guess what she <laughs> said? Oh, my God, you're kidding. Grandma told me I was her favorite. And, um, and that was just like her. She was a politician to her dying day, my, my grandmother, who I just adored. But, but if I had had a digital recorder, if she had a digital recorder at her bed, she may not have felt comfortable, you know, having that on tape. So... Um, I just, and I guess I just, when I thought about that, I thought, you know, I don't want to take away those sacred moments from people and, and their loved ones. <laughs> That's so true. You know, um, <laughs> although I, I think that, uh, I, I think that you were her favorite and she was trying to make the others feel good, you know, cause she was a nice lady. Aww. <laughs> Aww. So, so let me ask you, Lisa, because as as you said, you know you um, you have a master's degree. You have you studied linguistics at UC Berkeley, and in that uh, you were trained to seek patterns in language. So it doesn't matter if they're unintelligible or if they seem like nonsense or whatever. You, you were you still seek out and and patterns and try to find meaning in that. And so what what I understand from reading uh, about your work and reading your book. So sometimes we might think things don't make sense because it, they don't to us. To, you know, in, in the not in the language that we understand now, it may not make sense. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have meaning. Exactly. Exactly. Very well said. Yeah. And you know, for let me give you there two examples I would love to share with you and your listeners. Um, one is something that I call sustained narrative. And this is one of the things that most um, surprised me when I did this work is that, okay, so you're sitting next to grandpa and, you know, he's in the final stages of his life, final hours, well, final days or weeks. And, um, and he says something like, well, the train, the train's not working out. And, you know, you look at grandpa and you look at, you know, your sister or brother, you know, your mother and go, oh, grandpa's just losing it. You know, what's he talking about? And, you know, so we'll hear things out of context. But then the next day, because, you know, we kept these transcripts, grandpa says, looks like the engineer's coming to fix the train. <laughs> now, again, that taken out of context just one day, it's like, oh, you know, grandpa's really, you know, losing it or he gave him too much medication. <laughs> What we found in, um, in, in some of the transcripts is that people would tell these stories. So, you know, he, maybe the train is broken, the engineer is coming, the train is getting ready to, you know, go. Now I'm getting my things, I'm getting my passport. And over a period of two weeks, this story builds. So in isolation, each little detail, you know, every day or every other day, there might be another detail about this story. It's like, the person is watching a dream or experiencing something, they're narrating it, and in isolation, it seems like complete nonsense. And But when you actually write down and look at it over a period of days um, or maybe weeks, but usually it's maybe 10 days or so, you'll see there's a story and a narrative, and oftentimes it's associated with a trip, which is very common when people are dying. They start talking about some kind of trip they're taking, 
So, um, and also it is often these stories have to do with some kind of person being in the room with them. That's another common thing like, oh, there he is, the boxer. You know, again, oh, grandpa's crazy. But then the next day it's like, yeah, the boxer, the boxer's here, that guy, you know, that French guy, you know. And then it turns (laughs) out that French guy, you know, when you get the name, is a boxer who died 20 years ago and and grandpa used to love watching him. but over time, yeah, now the boxer's telling me it's time to go. Oops, the boxer's got something in his hands for me. Oops, it looks like I'm supposed to follow the boxer and he's got a dog with him. or You know, but this story developed. So it's really, you know, what looks like nonsense actually over time is a narrative. So um, I thought that was pretty amazing when I saw that that was happening. Oh, my gosh. Yes, yes. And I got to tell you, I would think that to me, you know, following that, that would be, to me, comforting. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's I mean, comforting for the. Yes. I mean, not as the person. I mean, I'm sure for the person dying who's experiencing. But I mean, as me, if if I were the granddaughter listening to it, you know, my heart would be happy that that you know, this seems to be yeah. you know what he's seeing. Uh, the boxer that he likes, and he's got a dog, and he wants him to go with him. You know, I think I would feel so much better. Yeah, and I think that's what's so remarkable about um, the final words is that you see all kinds of things that make us feel better. I mean, just people are, uh, you know, someone might say, we were talking about music earlier, and uh, you know, people may say something like, oh, do you hear that? I hear that. It's such... Here, let me see. I have this one quote I was just looking at. Let me see exactly what this person said. Can you hear those bells ringing? Can you hear those bells ringing? And, um, you know, people hear things. They see beautiful landscapes. And, you know, I don't want to sugarcoat it. There are periods of dying. It's like giving birth. There are times in the dying process that can be really painful and scary for people. But there seems to also be kind of a breakthrough point as they get closer to the threshold where people start hearing music, hearing deceased loved ones um, who are inviting them to come with them to, be, to go home. Um, so there is a lot of comfort. And, you know, I'm someone who when I started this project, you know, I had my, a lot of skepticism about the idea of an afterlife. I would have described myself as... Um, open-minded but not a believer, you know, when I started this research. And Mm -hmm. after hearing the kinds of things people say, um, you know, I've I've really become, I would say for lack of a better word, sort of a believer. And you just hear, let me give you a few examples of things you hear at at end of life. Um, Repetition is really common. People tend to repeat more than they do in regular conversation. So, I am, I am, I am the great I am. And then that person passed away right after she said that. Um, one person, her, um, the, this gentleman, the sister told me about this. He was a, um, worked for Verizon, you know, and he sold cell phones. And the very last thing he said, airtime is reducing. Minutes are running out. Oh. <laughs> and that's. I know you hear a lot of that kind of um, metaphor that's related to a person's life, and then people start using these kinds of metaphors um, as they're dying. Um, let's see. 
one that I thought was, um, so the wife turned to her husband and offered him some more great grapefruit juice, and he said, no, it's fine. I'm done. And then he, <laughs> and then he, <laughs> She even, she even smiled about that when she told me this. And you know what? Why not? I, I think sometimes, you know, I believe in science, and I feel like I also believe in spiritual things. I think that they work together, work with each other. And there are times when I think things have happened just because somebody, something in the universe, maybe it's my grandmother, maybe it's my guardian angel, and just wants to see me laugh, you know, just wants me to <laughs> yeah. Yeah. go, all right, That's that was funny. <laughs> yeah, it does, It really seems that way. It really, it really seems that way. And even, um, well, you know, with the, with just ha- what happened in my personal life, my husband left very unexpectedly. And so then I landed up moving to another city. And because of the timing of it, I landed up living in a household with some people while I was trying to get my, you know, orient myself. And it turns out the people that I moved in with were part of a theater company. And they're the ones who got me interested in writing a musical and doing music. And it's probably, you know, one of the most important things that's happened to me in my adult life and it would have never happened had the timing not been the way it was and um, mm-hmm. yeah we really have to have some that um, but yeah and so so what you're saying about patterns you know science is based on the idea that there are patterns and um, and that we study and we observe those patterns and we expect them to be you know replicable that, you know, that they can be reproduced and um, shown again to be the same patterns. And um, I wanted to mention one thing about Dr. Moody because this is one of the most interesting things I learned about him as a linguist. He originally, his PhD, first PhD, has, he has an MD and a PhD, and the guy is brilliant. And with his first PhD, he studied nonsense or unintelligible language, and he his whole idea was, you know, when you think about it, like Dr. Seuss, um, Shel Silverstein, um, I'm just thinking of the name, Lewis Carroll, all these folks had nonsense. I mean, they wrote nonsense, and these books have been very, very popular. So there's something in the human mind and spirit that is drawn to nonsense. Even, you know, we, you know we've talked about music tonight. You look at some jazz is has got all sorts of nonsense in it. And um, and we seem to be drawn to it sometimes because it's like the loosening. Nonsense allows us to kind of loosen our sense of ordinary reality. It allows us to go somewhere somewhere else. And But Raymond knew from his, his PhD and his work in research that there are many different types of nonsense. And different types of nonsense seems to have different effects on the brain. For example, uh, what's the sound of one hand clapping, right? That's a koan in Mm -hmm. Buddhism. And it has the effect of kind of bringing us to a certain kind of state of consciousness. And um, that nonsense really seems like some people do speaking in tongues. It's They call it glossolalia, where they're uttering these nonsense syllables. And yet, um, when they've done brain scans on what's going on when people are uttering that nonsense, they are oftentimes in the same kind of state that they're in when they're meditating and also making music. 
And people describe having really ecstatic states when they speak nonsense syllables. But anyway, Raymond knew a lot about nonsense, and um, he's, you know, he was way ahead of his time in his understanding. So when he became a, a medical student, and he was in his final years of residency, and he was working with people who were dying, you know, had cardiac arrest, he noticed that um, some of his patients would die, and then they would come back, and they would tell these stories. And all the other doctors thought that they were speaking nonsense. It's kind of like what I was saying about the person talking about the train coming out of yeah. context. It's not mm-hmm. So he would have these patients come back, you know, die and um, go to the afterlife or whatever, other dimension. And they would describe going through a tunnel or leaving their bodies. Now, everybody else didn't stop and listen to that nonsense because they figure, well, you don't listen to nonsense. You just dismiss it and walk away from it. Mm-hmm. But dear Raymond, yeah, and dear Raymond, who had an ear for nonsense and a respect for nonsense, did what I ended up doing with the Final Words Project. He made note of what the nonsense was and began to write it down and organize it. And what he found is, oh, my God, 20 of my patients were talking about leaving their bodies. There's a pattern here. You know, in isolation, there was only one person rambling on about leaving their body, and it seemed like nonsense. But when you start finding there are 20 or even 50 or even 100 and now thousands of people who describe this, then it stops it become science and not nonsense, right? So Raymond actually came across the whole idea of the near-death experience because of his love and respect for nonsense. And he, you know, I started seeing patterns in my father's nonsense as he was dying. And at that time, you know, I, I knew about Raymond Moody. I never thought in a thousand years I'd be working with him. I mean, I knew about his book, um, and for the heck of it, yeah, and this was seven or eight years ago, I went to Raymond's workshop right after my dad died. He was giving a workshop in Alabama, and I thought, well, I want to just hear more about from this guy. And when he started talking about, because when my dad died, I wrote things down and started noticing sort of some patterns. And when he started talking about, um, you know, patterns in the near-death experience and how he came to those of a light bulb went, went on. I was like, oh, my God. And then the fourth day when he said that he'd been looking for a linguist because he was really interested in people's final words, I really felt like spirit had taken me to the right place. And, no. um, and isn't that amazing? I know. It's, we just have to keep our heart open and, and believe that what we're doing. And, you know, my father's very unexpected um well, illness and, and then passing uh, was, of course, a, a, you know, a terrible thing for me. It filled me with grief. And yet it sort of determined the trajectory for my next, uh, you know, part of my life. And working with Raymond Moody has easily been the most incredible, you know, one among the most incredible things besides becoming a mom, which to me was such a miracle. Oh, um, yeah. But, oh, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so you know, and I'm beginning to feel that way about my divorce. And I'm beginning to see that spirit had something in mind for me, and um, you know, and, and to have faith in that. And so, this whole work with the Final Words Project really deepened my sense of um, of faith in, in so many ways. Um, I, 
Yeah, and Raymond Moody, like I said, I've been reading him for a long time. I'm sure it was quite amazing the, the, the way the moment happened, the way everything went together, and then you began working for him. And I was always surprised when I knew that he lived where my my mother's family was from. And so, he was, as he said to me before, he called and left him one message saying, well, we've got to talk about all the people we know, <laughs> you know, and, and see, see what's going on, you know, the stories and everything. Uh, but his question uh, I want to ask is, you know, you're talking about, um, you know, the study of like nonsense words and words of the dying and how sometimes they're disregarded. But sometimes people, don't some people sort of disregard them as, well, that's just, that's just delirium or that's just their medication. Right. Yeah. And I think one of the first questions I had with Raymond, because I, you know, I tended to, uh, you know, I had a scientific background and, and so I said, um, and I know that I said to him, well, don't we have to control for medication? You know, how can we do this research without, you know, really looking at what the meds do and da, 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 da. And he said, no, no, no. I want you to think of it this way. If you don't control for meds at all, you don't even think about medication, but you see the same patterns over and over again. And you know that those patterns, I mean, if, if, someone is taking X medication, another person is taking Y medication, another person is taking A medication, right? They're all taking different ones, but they're all saying the same kinds of things and having the same kinds of experiences. Then you begin to think, hmm, maybe there's a universal quality to this. And that was what Raymond argued. And in the beginning, I fought him on it. I was like, no, 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 we have to. And But it actually... Um, you know, I mean, there is no doubt, and there is no doubt that there are definitely medications that affect, affect us, I mean, of course. But what, when I spoke to nurses about it, what they told me is, um, well, there, there are a few things, but let me start with the first one, is that they said that with some of the medications, people will have, like, hallucinations. And sometimes there's even scary ones. But those are different than visions. So... Mm-hmm. We know that when people are affected by the meds, first the sentences that they say are much more cryptic and broken up. They're, they don't have much coherence. And yet when they're more in um, a consciousness or visioning state, the sentences are complete. And also what nurses were telling me is that the they, they, person has this ability to go back and forth between worlds. So a common thing might be someone might might start talking to an unseen person in the room, you know, maybe someone who had died before or the boxer or something, and they'll be talking to that person. But then they'll turn back to you and go, oh, uh, you know, Lisa, could you get me some water? <laughs> and then they'll go back. So they'll go between the worlds. So you know, the big difference is that when someone's really under the influence of, of meds and it's just sheer delirium and stuff, there's no capacity to move back and forth. And that's when there's, uh, you know, clearly you can see that there's more of a vision going on or there's an altered state. Now, in other cases, um, you know, we don't know yet. You know, we, we haven't studied it enough. There are certain types of nonsense, like something like... Um, Yes, I'd like scrambled eggs, but where would you reappear? Mm-hmm. No, that may have been the meds. Mm-hmm. However, nonsense like my father saying, there is so much so and sorrow. 
there is so much so in sorrow that is technically nonsense. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, sorrow doesn't have. But in a way, he's making sense. I mean, there's something uh, he's expressing a certain type of grief. So, mm-hmm. so there's a certain, you know, it, it, the, the, you know, it, so there's this line between, you know, maybe the meds do affect it, affect the language, but then it's what we're looking at is let's not control it for meds at all and see what appears and still look at the patterns because you. Mm-hmm find certain universal patterns emerge. So people, for example, talk a lot about the trip they're taking, no matter what their meds are, no matter what their illness is, or they'll talk about their going home. And so, you know, we're, this is a very young study. <laughs> and there's a lot to look at. So, you know, I'm the first to say that I would I would guess that as we look more closely, you know, we will see certain types of nonsense are a result of medications and certain types of nonsense might be more an expression of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Well, let me say, uh, by the way, if you're just listening, if, if you're just turning into the live show, you know, I'm talking to the amazing linguist, poet, educator, Lisa Smart. Oh, and I should add in um, musician as well and, and, and songwriter. Um, Lisa Smart, we were talking about Final Words, the Final Words Project and what people say. Her book is Words at the Threshold, What We Say As We're Nearing Death. It's from New World Library. And you can go to uh, the website Final Words Project. And if you – now, some people listen – when they're driving, they tell me, or when they're um, running or whatever, you know, I will share all of the links to get Lisa's book, Words at the Threshold, and um, Final Words Project on all of my social media, not just Madam Perry Salon, but also for Jennifer Perry. And if you're listening live, and I know a lot of people are, uh, because you're letting me know. If you want to call in, if you have a question to ask Lisa or something, I'm sure she's fine with that. And the number is 646-716-9922. That's 646-716-9922. Or you, uh, if you're a place where you can't make a phone call, you can just send me a message on Facebook for, uh, through Jennifer Maudette Perry, and I'll ask. And so... Uh, Lisa, I want to, when we come back, I want to take just a moment uh, to catch my breath and get some more water, and, and maybe for you too. And then when we come back, I want to talk about uh, some famous last words from people, and also what does end-of-life speech say about consciousness? And we'll be right back in just one minute with Lisa Smart. I, I'm just so glad she's here. I mean, the world has gone crazy, right? I mean, this whole pandemic, I I, I don't even know if I'm coming or going anymore. You know what I mean? But the one thing during the pandemic that I found out, right, that was a good thing, was the Madame Paris Salon. I mean, this podcast, right, when you hear her laughing, all you want to do is laugh. When her dog's barking in the background and she's talking to the duck, I'm like, she's going to an interview, and I'm like, this podcast is the best podcast I've ever heard before. You know what I mean? 
Oh, I don't know about that, but I bet it's the uh, only podcast where you'll usually hear dogs barking in the background. Anyway, this is Madam Perry, Jennifer Jen, J.P. Perry, and I am thrilled to be here with poet linguist Lisa Smart. Uh, her book is Words at the Threshold, What We Say as We're Nearing Death. And so many people began messaging me after I first started sharing things about you, saying that, you know, they they wanted to get your book. They wanted to learn more about you, your, learn more about your work. And I thought I, I had no idea how many people, um, although I shouldn't be surprised. You know, I was saying earlier, we, we are all, whether we talk about it or not, or whether we see each other to talk about anything, we are all usually thinking the same thing. We have the same interests, the same concerns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're not usually alone. Um, mm-hmm. That's so true. Tell me about... Uh, just just to just switch up, some of the famous <laughs> and and on your website where uh, you have some information on the media page, some famous last words that were known to be uttered by people like um, uh, Bob Hope, Steve Jobs. Yeah, um, Steve Jobs. I think many people are familiar with it, but uh, it's oh, and these are literally the last words. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Um, the one I mentioned earlier was Bach. It's Don't Cry for Me, for I Go Where Music is Born. Beethoven, oh, yeah. I Shall Isn't that beautiful? Don't Cry for Me, for I Go Where Music is Born. Um, Bob Hope, his wife was panicking, understandably, as he was going and closer to death, and she said, my God, Bob, we haven't even made arrangements. What? Where should I bury? What should we do? I mean, she just went into logistic mode, and he just said, surprise me. <laughs> Very Bob Hope right there. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Roger Ebert, some of you may remember him. He was a yeah. movie critic, also quite skeptic, you know, very critical-minded person, but as he was dying... He told his wife, Chaz, that, um, well, he couldn't speak because he he had throat cancer, I believe, but he wrote down, this is all an elaborate hoax. This is all an elaborate hoax, he wrote. Um, One of my favorites is Jeffrey Holder, who was a choreographer, um, a great choreographer. The very last words, this was reported by his son, were, Arms, two, three, four, turn, two, three, four, down, two, three, four. Whoa. Yeah. And it makes makes you wish, makes me wish I knew what he was seeing. I know. I know. And that's the, you know, one of the things I feel very passionately about with the Final Words Project is, you know, generally most of us are just you know, afraid. I mean, death is scary, understandably, and loss is, there's nothing, I mean, loss is the worst part of the human experience, definitely. But somehow, if um, if we can just take a deep breath and, and enter into the language as much as we can, we, oftentimes, we hear some really remarkable and even comforting things when we listen. But most of us have the response of just dismissing what we hear or running away from it, or not want, you know, it's scary. You don't want to engage with your loved one as they're dying sometimes. You don't want to let them know, you know, talk about it. 
But, you know, one of the things I regret when my father was dying, he started talking about the angels in the room. And my father was a total skeptic, and he started talking about angels. And now looking back, I sure wish I had asked him more about those angels, you know. Um, And I didn't because I was so stunned, and I didn't know what to say. So in the future, um, you know, I'm going to ask about the angels. (laughs) You know, that (laughs) – That is what I want to know, because um, I was going to ask about, uh, you know, what what does it say about consciousness, you know, in the live comments. But I'm thinking now I want to ask you one more thing. And I know I've only got a few more minutes with you. And Lisa Smart, you've been so generous with your time tonight to be on the show, especially after I messed up the schedule before. And you still came back and you're still nice to me. And I am so grateful. So um, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm just grateful that you you gave us time even if you're even if you're you're isolated you know if it were me I, I don't know sometimes if I'd be able to do a podcast or if I just say no nah, I've got a freezer full of a chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream and Netflix I'm fine I'm fine I'm fine you know <laughs> nobody cares what I think anyway that's what I would be saying eh, they're not gonna listen anyway I'll just get my ice cream and my Netflix and my dogs I'm okay but um but if they want to know that, they can also get your book, Words at the Threshold, and I've been sharing the links to people to get it. But let me ask this. When you talk about what people say and what people hear, and um, what tips, what suggestions do you have for people who, if they're their loved one of someone passing uh, or uh, the health care provider, on how when they start hearing this, oh, wait, we do have a call, somebody calling uh, for you. Stay with me just oh, one great. second. Oh, great. Yeah. Uh, hi, welcome to Madam Perry Salon here with me and Lisa Smart. So come on in and introduce yourself and say hello. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes, mm-hmm. I can. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sometimes technology these days is <laughs> not very reliable. <laughs> Hi, my name is Kristen, and I'm just listening. And I just had a question, um, and I'm, I'm, this is such an interesting topic, and especially now, or I think it, you know, it, the COVID thing has become very, very real to a lot of people, and yeah. death has become very, very real, yeah. and it doesn't really happen to a lot of people it like sneaks up on them it's just been so removed from our society that you know a lot of people just don't even talk about it and I wonder since you're a writer and and, you know and 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 what made you bridge over to something that is so taboo that is really Mm -hmm. something that's like also bringing like from the world of like I don't want to talk about it. Something that's like, you know, maybe we should talk about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe we should. And this is why. Mm, yeah. And I think, you know, I'm one of these people who always believe that the tough things in life have a silver lining. And, um, I mean, it's that COVID has been so challenging for all of us. And yet, you know, the silver lining might be that we might start talking about some of these things more openly. And, um yeah. But it's a really good question. I and in the beginning that when I started doing this research, a part of me was like, "Ew, I don't know if I really want to do this," you know, because at first my oh really yeah. I mean, I did have some hesitation, but the deeper I got into it, the more amazed I became. 
because there, I, I mean, I had, I had that sense with my dad. I mean, again, this is a man who did not believe in angels. And three days yeah. before he died, he announced to me, three days left, the angels tell me enough, three more days. And wow. three days later, I'll be done. Mm-hmm. This is a skeptic. This is a, you know, PhD, psychologist, skept- I mean, skeptical scientist. And um, so, you know, I just heard so much. And now that I've done this research, uh, there is something going on at end of life. And, you know, it's very sad with the COVID patients because, you know, I am I'm not afraid of, of dying anymore, but I am afraid of the suffering and the pain and it's and yeah. Um, you know, what's unfortunate is that, you know, people can't sit by their loved ones and hear their final words and, and have yeah. these interruptions. And that's uh. it almost brings me to tears because that's you know, that is such a tragedy. Such a tragedy. Yeah. Because when you actually listen to the final words, um, many times it's very surprising what you'll hear. It, it can be very comforting. Wow. So it's actually mm-hmm. more comforting for the the person because it's always such a everybody's very worried about the patient. So it's mm-hmm. it's almost like a comforting, like you know, to to the loved ones around them. You know, it's so fascinating, and the research I've done is very often it's the loved one, by the time they're approaching dying and they've had some really beautiful experiences with death, many have, they're ready to go. They want to go home, and many people describe it as home. And what happens is people will stay around until they feel that the people around them are are able to let go. And um, or they may want to see one last family member or something. They may stay alive to see a daughter or, yeah. or, or you know. But really, when people get close to the threshold, they're they're ready to go, and we need to let them go. And oftentimes, they're communicating in many ways to us that they're ready. And oh. oftentimes, yeah. And oftentimes, people die when everybody leaves the room. You know, it's so classic. <gasps> people will say. We were waiting and waiting and waiting for Dad to die, and we were there. And then we just decided to go out to lunch because we were so, um, you know, these are pre-pandemic I have days. heard that, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, wow. You know, they, yeah, and so these are the kinds of patterns that we do see at end of life, and that's one that's very common. So do you think that the people sitting around are kind of like, almost hanging on and and, and, yeah. and it would probably be better if they're like, you know what? Go. It's okay. Yeah. Matter of fact, um, there was a nurse at Emory uh, in Atlanta and um, she was very tuned into the dying process. She'd been uh, there for 30 years working with dying patients. And she described one story where, um, the husband was saying, get my Jetta, get my Jetta, get my Jetta. And people were like, what is he talking about? And um, <laughs> and the wife said, well, that's his car, but I don't know what he's talking about. Honey, you're in the hospital. We can't get your car. And then the nurse bent over very kindly and said, you know what, sir? We're going to gas that car up for you and have her ready to go for you in the morning, you know, as soon as you like, and you're going to have a nice, safe trip. And as soon as oh. she said about four or five hours later, he passed on. Oh, oh my because, God. Yeah, because she stepped into his world and talked, you know, went into yeah. his world. 
you know what, what you were saying. Uh, if, if you don't mind me interrupting, and uh, Kristen, I'm so glad you called uh, because thank you so much for answering that. Thank you. Well, I'm so, yeah. Uh, thank you, Matt Kristen. Perry. Kristen is a friend of the show, yeah. and she also is uh, somebody who, who who I learn a lot from all the time. But um, yeah. just before just before the last part about the Jedi, <laughs> when you were talking about people who might stay. You know, and wait till somebody leaves the room to go. And I thought, gosh, that almost sounds like you know when somebody stays too long at a party, and you're thinking, God, make them go. Uh, <laughs> I wow. want to go sleep. Yeah, make right. them go. <laughs> so, if if you would tell tell me tell us then, so while you've got a few minutes, tell us what what would you suggest? What kind of tips do you offer for loved ones or healthcare providers on how to respond to the speeches of the dying? And I think what this nurse did at Emory, of course, was the perfect thing to do. Yes, and that's I mean one of the first things I would say is enter the world of the dying, and so. You know, first, one way to do that is keep a final words journal so you begin to notice what kinds of metaphors or things that they're seeing. You know, are they talking about trains? Well, if they're talking about trains, enter that world. Or are they talking about the big dance that's coming? And, you know, oftentimes it's so typical that people go, Mom, you're not going to a dance tonight. You know, and yeah, and don't discount. You know, it's just like, you know, with children, you know how they they talk about all kinds yes. of things. Yes. And it's really similar that you want to enter into their experience. So the first thing is enter the world of the dying. And then, um, you know, have eyes for the sacred. You know, just assume that right. what's going on is sacred. And that's hard to do because, you know, so it's hard to see the sacredness because, um, you know, death is not always pretty, right? It's not always pretty. But to remember that there's something sacred going on. And um, also, like, always validate the words of the person, you know, always validate the person's experience, like I was describing, you know, don't say don't, don't, don't. Um, Ask questions, you know, like, oh, wow, tell me about your Jetta. Let me know a little bit about that Jetta. Yeah. So that's the, I guess, um, yeah, I think the questions, engaging them, um, don't be judgmental, and also assume that your loved one hears you, even if they're unresponsive. We know that the very last sense to go is hearing, and uh, we interviewed people had, you know, were in comas, and it looked like they were complete, quote, vegetables, unquote, and actually many of them heard much more than we thought they did when they were in coma. So be, you know, be really yeah. mindful of what you say around the dying. Yeah, you know, that makes sense. You know, there's a, there's a book by Carolyn Leavitt. It's her latest book, With uh, with or without you, and she had been in a coma once, and so this character goes into a coma for a long time. So she gives her experience about how she's she can't see people, but she can hear people. She knows what's going on. You mm-hmm. know, sometimes exactly. it's a little fuzzy. So that's a very good because you know it's fiction, but she's telling it from her own experience. Um, and what oh, and tell the one about the big dance, getting ready for the big dance. I just love that. Yeah, and you know there were actually several. You know there uh, there were several of those, but um. I'm not too sure exactly which one you're referring to, but I'll just tell you one of the examples where um, I think it was, you know, grandma and they called her Nana and she asked, uh, I think it was the granddaughter to bring her pearls. And she was like, what for? (laughs) And she said, no, bring me my pearls. I'm I'm getting ready for the big dance tonight. And, you know, indeed a few hours they gave her her pearls, right? They didn't question her or say she was crazy. 
They're like, okay, Nana, we'll get you pearls. And they put the pearls on her and told her how beautiful she looked. And and then she, uh, you know, passed on some hours later. But you um, they have to, and many people, I think that'll be one of the things I'll say. I, I might be, I love to dance too. So people usually talk about going somewhere and doing something that's very close to their heart. But the dance one is pretty, um, you hear that, we, we have several examples of people talking about that mentioning the big dance. Yeah, I think so. I it's think almost that was like... Go I'm ahead, sorry. Anna. No, 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 not wrong. Well, it's almost... This is... I'm, 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 I can't wait. Yeah. Um, it's almost like... Like... Let's remind ourselves that what's going on here is not about ourselves. It's about that person mm. going through this mm. experience, this, this transitional mm. experience. Beautiful. And mm-hmm. even though you are feeling things, and yes, you're part of it, it's not about you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We forget well, that. So. I know I forgot. I forget that. And and also, I think you're absolutely beautifully beautiful. And I think, too, is that it's not just about there's also something bigger than all of us that it's about, right? And it does really convince now that we do go somewhere. You know, I I can't tell you that I know exactly where it is or what it is, but um, there's people talk about, and people have near-death experiences say that when they die, there's this sense that they've returned. You know, they've come home. And um, people, when they're dying, just so commonly refer to going home. That's so comforting. Yeah, that's so comforting. All right. Well, thank you so much. Kristen, thank you so much for calling. Thank you. Uh, Lisa Smart, thank you for being here. Uh, Yeah, thank you so much, Lisa. The book is. (laughs) The book is worth. I'm so glad you called, Kristen. You you always bring something special every single time. The book is, uh, I was about to give the name of my song I was going to play next. The book is not Everybody's Got the Swing. The book is called Words at the Threshold. <laughs> Although you may be going to the big dance, but the word is, the book is Words at the Threshold, What We Say as We're Nearing Death. And uh, the website, finalwordsproject. I think it's .org or .com. Uh-huh. Yes, it's .org. Yeah, and there's okay, and I'll be... All right, I'll be sharing that so people can go get that book. And uh, it's it's a beautiful book. Uh, just, it's It's just so rich. And you will thank me, and I'll say, oh, that's okay. Anyway, <laughs> this is Madam Perry Salon. Be good to yourself. Be good to each And remember what I always say is that everybody's got to I love y'all. Mother Goose